Hello, everybody. I'm recording today. Hi, everyone. Yeah, that's not going to work. Hi, folks. Welcome to episode number 31 of the Jackson Hole Connection. I am Stefan Abrams, your host, bringing you wildly interesting stories of people who have a connection to Jackson Hole. My guest today is the fascinating and remarkable Bill Briggs. Bill arrived in Jackson Hole the first time in the early 50s on his way to skiing in Sun Valley, Idaho. Later down the road, Bill landed here permanently in Jackson Hole. He also had a great career working for Exum Mountain Guides, where he worked with climbing legends Glim Exum and Barry Corbett. Bill was the first person to ski the Grand Teton. He's a founding member of the Church of Scientology and has received five Halls of Fame for skiing. An amazing tidbit about Bill is he has accomplished so much in the climbing and skiing community, even with a fused hip and he continues to ski to this day at the age of 87. If you come to Jackson Hole, you can see Bill playing almost every Sunday at the Stagecoach Bar in the Stagecoach Band, which he co-founded over 50 years ago. I hope you enjoy listening to this small history of Bill Briggs. I was honored to have had the opportunity to sit down and interview him. Before we begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Well, Bill, thank you for coming to my office today and being here for an interview. It's an honor to sit here with you and talk to you for the Jackson Hole Connection. Oh, well, thank you. So, Bill, you've been in the Valley for how many years now? Since the early 50s. Okay. Quite some time. Not since the Valley was started, but still a little bit of time. (laughs) Not that old. (laughs) Um, What originally brought you out here to Jackson Hole? Uh, I came out to go skiing and climbing. Uh, we were on our way to Sun Valley, and we came through and saw that people were skiing here. So we stopped over for a night and skied the next day at Snow King. So when you came out here to ski, it was just Snow King that was the place to ski? Oh, yes. What was it like skiing in the 50s at Snow King? Well, you didn't have groomed snow. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, you know, we had old equipment and whatnot. It was a lot of fun. It was a a fun place. The point that hit all of us is that we like Jackson Hole. We all wanted to live here eventually. The other guys didn't make it, but um, I was determined at that time that this is the place for me to do whatever I wanted to do because it would be acceptable here. To ski? The people would accept what the hell I wanted to do. Okay. And how many years later did it take you to end up setting roots here in Jackson Hole? Well, uh, it took a while because you didn't have any economy wintertime at all. It really, it was a summer economy. Uh, you could get a summer job. I did. I got a mountain guide, but then I had to get a ski instructor job somewhere else. So it wasn't until Teton Village, you know, Jackson Hole ski area, uh, started up that I could get a job here to enable me to stay year-round. 
And you were a mountain guide with Exum? Yes. Mountain guides? Were you hired by Paul Exum himself? Yes. Yes? Okay. What was it like working with Paul Exum? Glenn was a uh, wonderful man. Glenn Exum. My apologies. Uh, I loved the fact that everything was on an ethical basis. I say say ethical. It's... uh, Nothing is is uh, artificial. Everything that you did with Glenn was uh, down to earth and very practical, and it made sense. You were to make it basically on your own determinism. Uh, you determine what you're going to do with the clients, and um, gee, the climbing clients were wonderful people. You could do what you wanted with them as long as you accomplished what was needed. And boy, what a opportunity it was to work with that man, okay? Because all he did was to build you up. That's spectacular. What a great leader. He was. He was a fantastic leader. He, had, uh, he was a school teacher, music teacher, and his little school in Kellogg, Idaho, okay, would be national champions year after year. That's fascinating. Who knew? He'd come here in the summertime and play music, dance music, uh-huh. okay, and got together with Paul Petzal, and they had the climbing school and guide service for going up the Grand. Okay. When you first landed here, as you said, there was no winter economy. When did you start coming out here in the winter? When Jackson Hole Mountain Resort yeah. opened, that's when you started saying, hey, yes. I can stay here and live here. Right. Okay. I got a job instructing out there, uh, and um, uh, it looked like I would have year-round. Mm-hmm. So you were known in the Valley for being the first person to ski a particular mountain. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot. Uh, it's a pretty big story, really. Uh, uh, Barry Corbett uh, was an instructor of mine back east, and he came out and was uh, basically... Uh, the reason that I got into guiding, I had taught him some bits on climbing and whatnot, and he brought me into the ski school, to the climbing school, and recommended me, basically. Uh, I was pretty cautious about the whole thing because I was not as strong, and I had a hip that was going to go out, so I, I was not very confident of how well I could do as a guide. But um, that was a start. And uh, then working basically with uh, Barry uh, as, my, as the guy who would go in between. Okay, he, would, he was the enabler for <laughs> <laughs> what all I wanted to do. He came and said, all right, what we're going to do is ski the mountains. Okay, we'll do mountaineering. Okay and skiing, we'll put the two together. Okay. He said, what should we do? (laughs) 
I said, well, this uh, Buck Mountain looks pretty good. And he said, fine. And he had a client, okay, uh, a niece of Betty Woolsey's, and she wanted to ski one of the Tetons, so he said, okay, we'll go up and we'll ski Buck Mountain. So they skied Buck Mountain. That was the first one of the ski mountaineering type of things to be done. Barry did that, and he guided it. Okay, wonderful job. Then uh, my hip gave out. I got a hip fused and whatnot, and I took a while to get back up on my what I could do. Uh, and when I had the strength back up, I started to decide, okay, what I'll do is we'll do uh, middle tea time. Okay, so mm -hmm. the Southwest Cooler is a good easy one and what nothing, nothing particularly challenging. My wife and I went up and we skied that. And, and then the next one would be Buck Mountain. Okay, so we ski Buck Mountain. Now that one is really a challenge. Uh, Pepe Stiegler, when he skied it, said, you can die. It's <laughs> <laughs> skiing this. Because if you if you make a mistake up at the top little narrow place, right, when you've got a cliff underneath, okay, and go over the cliff, you will make, you're not going to live on that anyway. So Pepe's analysis was pretty accurate. Okay, and that worked out fine. Okay, the next one I decided to do was uh, Mount Moran, because you can obviously see the Skillet Glacier. Okay. So we skied that. So I skied Skillet Glacier, okay, on Buck Mountain, on, on Mount Moran. And it was a, a real challenge, okay. Pepe went up and uh, he couldn't ski it from the very top, but going over the cornice at the top of the skillet handle, okay, it's a cornice and you have to ski off that and that's a real challenge. I mean, that something else. I just barely managed it myself, okay? And unfortunately, the turn is the wrong one, okay? It puts my fused hip on the uphill side, which tips me over downhill. So I tip over downhill, and I'm going head first down the uh -oh. skillet handle. <laughs> <laughs> but you roll over, okay? and get right back up on the skis again, okay? That worked, all right. So that was all okay. I decided, all right, I'm ready to do the grant. Okay, I'm ready to do the grant. Let's go for it. <laughs> and there we are. <laughs> okay, so skiing the grand is a uh, bigger challenge. Uh, it's a wonderful thing from my point of view, mm -hmm. okay? I don't know what other people consider it. But I enjoy it from the fact that there was different uh, skills needed to ski it well. Okay. First of all was to find a, a snow route that would work all the way down. All right. That's not obvious. From anywhere that you look at the ground, you can't see that there is a snow route. It's obvious that you can ski off the top out onto an east snowfield, and that snowfield would work, all right. Or you could go down the Ford Couloir, which is done now, nowadays, a lot. But from there, it's a mystery where you, you, 
You can ski the east face and go down the Stetna couloir, and you can't see it because it's it's hidden by an overhanging right side. Uh huh. Okay. And um, if you if you're up on middle tea time, you can look across and you can see the couloir. Okay, but you can't otherwise. Uh, that was the route that I chose to do. Okay, wound up doing. Uh, there was a big chalk stone. Okay, a big huge chalk stone from one side to the other, and you have to climb up around that. Now the climb around that chalk stone was mixed ice, snow, and rock. So I had I did it with crampons on, broke off the front prongs of the of the crampon when I had to go on to walk. Anyway, tough little pitch to climb. Did it roped with a belay, so I wouldn't die if I fell on it. Anyway, made it up around that, brought the other people up that were going to help me out, went to the top of the Stetner Couloir, but that's as far as they could go, because as soon as you go above the Stetner Couloir, you have a thousand foot drop. Hmm. Okay? So under your feet is a thousand feet of empty air. And it's very narrow and going up, and it's very steep snow. It's narrow. It's a little narrower than the length of the skis. Okay. Okay. I'm following. That's pretty narrow. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you try to bring your leg up to kick a step, okay, your knee hits the snow blocking, lifting the leg high enough, okay? Nice. So the knee hits the snow and you can't get up to kick a step. So I turn the ski poles upside down and stick them in and then I can lean back enough to get my knee by the snow, kick the foothold, uh-huh. okay? Stand on that and then do sort of a skip and put the other foot, okay, into that uh, foothold, okay? Because I can only make a step up with the right, with the left foot. The right one is a fused mm-hmm. hip. You can't do it. Anyway, so I climb up that way, get above the narrow part, or go through a little cliff band. And then I'm on the east snowfield, and it's a matter of just simply going up. I could do three steps and then take my breath, get my breath back, and do three more, and get my breath back, etc and do that and go on up to the top of the mountain. Now, it's not very difficult going. You're on snow, I got crampons on, and you're not slipping, you know, it's all solid. But it's hard work, okay, for me. Much less hard work, but also take into consideration you have a fused hip. Right. Yes. I'm carrying my skis. You get up to the top of the mountain, and then the problem of putting the skis on. Now, one ski will go on very easily, mm-hmm. okay? The second one is a bit of a problem because the top is uh, rounded, okay, and frozen snow, so it's an icy crust. You can't get the edge of the ski to bite in very well, so you have to edge the ski. So you're standing on an edge ski, on a rounded top, it's like being on the side of an egg. Now, the next problem is putting on the other ski. You 
you bend down to try. You have a step in binding. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, going down to put the other ski on. Well, when you lean down like that, you start to lose your your footing. You know, your stability mm-hmm. isn't quite as good, and the skis would start going backwards off the north face. That's not the direction <laughs> you want to go. You want that, you know, that. <laughs> Uh, and then try it the other way, you know, we're compensating going off the front side of the mountain, okay? And then it's finally get that just just right and lean down and put the other foot, you know, get the other ski on. Okay. A good trick. Okay, we'll get that. On. Now it's just plain fun. And go down and it's very narrow going in between the rocks, Okay. Uh, so you, it's rock outcrops basically at the top seventh block of the of the mountain, okay. And people didn't, you know, people look at the photograph and they can't see any traction there. No, it was hard snow. I mean, I mean that's frozen crust. And that is probably thirteen thousand feet, roughly. It was what? That's roughly around thirteen thousand feet. Yeah. Yes. Thirteen. Seven, is it? Yeah. Anyway, um, but it's fun to do. It's a two-pole rebound. It's a check rebound off the skis, two poles, and I can do it very precisely, okay? So I could go around the pieces of rock that are outcropping, and it's just plain fun to do, okay? Because the, I, the crust is just exactly right to get a bounce off, mm-hmm. great fun. Then you go out onto what is the upper part of Petzold Ridge, and it's a snow-covered ridge, and I know the skis are gonna break through the crust, okay? So you don't know when it's gonna happen. When it does happen, I dump over again, roll over, and get back up. Well, same as I did on Mount Moran. So. Now it's skiing down through summer snow, corn snow, basically. Lovely stuff to ski in. The skis are working perfectly, and you just go down through. And then the ridge narrows down, and the skis just perfectly right down to the end of the snow on that. Okay, now we go out. From there is to go out onto the east face. Now the east face is an avalanche prone uh, because it is curved. It's not concave, it's convex. So what you want to do, or be sure to do, is to cut across right where the convex is at its maximum. That's the point at which it would break off, okay, an avalanche. So you cut across exactly there. And so I'm in the right place. I, on the way up, I made sure I'd be there at the right place. And you start out across that, and you try to make it slide. Well, no problem. It slid. So uh, it's sliding out. I'm going across slowly, making sure it would slide out. It does. It goes down past my companions, mm-hmm. okay, that are waiting down below. They figure I'm in it. Uh-oh. <laughs> anyway... But then it's, it's back up and ski in that, which has gone down already. 
then it's the turn down through and you get down to that last little narrow place. Now you have to ski through that narrow place. It's not wide enough for the whole ski to fit in. So the idea was, okay, I go first turn this way. It's a left turn, uh, you know, right turn, and then it's ski out of the bottom, okay, and make another left turn and come to a stop, okay. Well, it's a good challenge to fit that in and stay just on the snow. Well, the first turn was fine, okay. Second turn, the tails of the skis hit the rock on the side, and then it's ski out the bottom uh, fast and make a turn and then bring it to a halt. Mm-hmm. Come up right behind my friends and then say, where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, where you left me? <laughs> up there. <laughs> okay. Now, the next problem is get over the chalk stone so you have to rig a rappel, rappel them down. Uh, then it's it's a, a chalk stone, it's a rounded rock, okay, that's in there. So the snow is rounded. You have the rope going over the top and you just ski around the right side and you go right into the air and slide down on the rope. Okay, so a nice little rappel, hmm. fun to do. I mean, it was, I had never done that before. Anyway, get down, coil the rope, send the guys down, get them down, and then Shoots of snow were coming in from the right side. So you had snow periodically coming in, and it would form into a little gully, Uh okay? And it would go down that gully and whatnot. So the guys were staying out of that little gully, getting on down, and so I was trying to time it so that I could ski down in between the little shoots. The shoots would be by maybe five minutes apart or something like that. Anyway, so you time it out. I ski into the gully, bury both ski tips, because the skis wouldn't go through, mm-hmm. okay? I bury in there. I fall over, so now I'm head first down again. Okay, you roll over, and all of it's starting to slide. Okay, well, I don't want an avalanche starting to wipe out my friends. No, no. Okay. So the idea here is is to roll over and you turn one ski 90 degrees, okay? Like, like putting it as a pole in the snow. So you turn one ski as you roll over and then bury that ski in, and that stops the avalanche. No kidding. So now you have an avalanche stopper. Uh-huh. <laughs> and get up out of that and ski down the rest of the way to my friends. And, and there's a, a an ice ripple and a wave, okay, ice wave. Um, so you can't really ski it. You can't get it. The skis won't bite into the ice. So I had fixed a line. I have a fixed rope, a uh, light line on the way up, so that when we get here, I could just simply take one hand on on the line, ski out on the first ripple, turn and come back, and turn again, 
and then let go of the line and ski off the second ripple. Well, the next guy to ski that decided he would do it without a rope. On the ice? On the ice. Okay. Okay. I was watching from below, and he was 40 feet in the air (laughs) (laughs) coming up. (laughs) He got launched. (laughs) And fortunately, he fell and stopped before he went off the cliff that was underneath it. Very dramatic. I mean, he was much more dramatic than I was. So anyway, this ends at um, what's known as the Black Dyke. And the friends go back on the Black Dyke, back to the hut to pick up a gear. And I go the other way, off to the right, and go up over Pemmican Call and onto the next snowfield. And there's Vince Lee. And uh, Vince got a camera around his neck and whatnot. And he's got his Boy Scouts out there. And he's doing uh, snow training with his Boy Scouts. Um, he said, did you do it? And I said, yeah. And he said, great. I'm glad you did. He, didn't, he neglected to take any pictures. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I started out across. And then the whole thing starts to slide surface slough and whatnot and so I just got on top of the surface slough and ski fast enough to stay on top and ski it all the way across on moving snow and ski it across to the other side kind of fun <laughs> and then go over the next call into what is the teepees glacier so called okay well it's no longer a moving glacier uh, in fact there may not even be any ice left in there but anyhow go into that, it's a coom, big, and immediately I'm into big, uh, big, big as my hand, frost feathers, okay? Huge frost feathers. And they're stacked up on each other and whatnot, and they're very brittle. So you ski through them, they break. And there's a tickle, and you have a tinkle, 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 and it's a huge, noise after after you go through okay it's a lot of noise breaking through these things the skis are on something solid underneath and these are the ice okay make six turns and it's all sliding down so fast i can't keep the equilibrium okay it's just physically impossible for me in that fast moving stuff you're just trying to stay ahead of the avalanche so I stop and just let it all settle down, okay? Uh-huh. And do six turns again, and they began moving so damn fast. Anyway, never skied in stuff like that before or since. I, I don't know, maybe it had been, been an odd year. The frost feathers. To have that happen. Hmm. Anyway, get down from there and ski on down the rest of the way. Find some friends in the meadows, so-called. Okay, they're having a lot, they're, They've had their lunch. I have mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And my other friends that have accompanied me up above uh, join me there. And two of us ski down from there. Get down almost to the um, first switchback, okay, on the trail up to Garnet Canyon. And... uh, 
we hike because we ran out of snow. We hike from there down. So he takes both pairs of skis, which is nice for me, and I can just hike down. On the trail, there's a couple coming up the trail, okay, and they say, oh, where have you been skiing? Oh, up on the grand teacher, how high, how high up from the top, how many times? <laughs> you know? How many times did you ski the grand? Yeah, I mean, time. so I say just once, and uh, they said, "Oh, that's too bad." <laughs> oh my word! How funny! So you were daring enough and felt as though that you had the skills to go up there and ski. What time of year was this that you did this? June and June, mid June. Okay. So you're not doing this in January um, or February. You're waiting until there's a certain freeze-thaw cycle that's happened. Well, you see, the snow is building up all the way Mm -hmm. through May. Okay, raining down below, Mm -hmm. but it's building snow up there. And getting enough snow on the mountain is really critical. Sure. And... How much would you contribute the leadership that you learned from Glenn Exum and Barry Corbett that allowed you to have the confidence to ski the Grand? Barry was extremely strong, and not physically, but strong spiritually. He was, uh, had a great deal of confidence in what he was doing. Wonderful to have along. You could depend on him uh, to pull you through. Developing that sort of confidence, I figure, comes from having the expertise. Burying in matriculating into Dartmouth College, okay, had the highest IQ of anybody that has ever gone to Dartmouth. The guy was brilliant, and I could work with him on intellectual Tight, you know, figuring out skiing. And he was extremely helpful in, in doing that. So we worked out how we could ski under control on steep terrain. And um, he was inspirational for many of us. I took advantage of it as best I could. Mm-hmm. Apparently so. <laughs> and I figured I had it worked out, and I did. Thank you for sharing that in-depth story. I think that will live with me forever and everybody (laughs) that has the opportunity to consider skiing the grand as far as what it was like you you mentioned spirituality and in the pre-show when we were talking a bit you mentioned that you are a founding member of the church of scientology right how did it come about for you to start a church and much less the church of scientology which is very non-traditional for people's religion. Uh, I was pretty disenchanted with a number of things at college, at home, uh, in church, pretty much all my youth. And it didn't seem to me that anything was going in a right direction. It was being dictated. Everything seemed to be dictated by somebody else. It wasn't me doing the dictation. It's somebody else doing it. And my conclusion was we need to have some way, educationally speaking, to get students or the public, 
or whatever, to be responsible for their own learning. <laughs> okay, it's a matter of responsibility. It's not what somebody tells you to do. It's what you reasoning for yourself. If you look at the definition of ethics, it's contemplation of optimum survival. It's not somebody else doing the contemplation. It's you doing it. So I went looking around for, all right, where do you find this ethical type of operation going? I couldn't find any. I was in New York having my hip fused. I tried to ski with a cast and twisted my knee. <laughs> and so I'm trying to recover from this twisted knee, which is all swollen and everything. This girl comes by and says, I'll give you an assist, okay? So gives me an assist, and the knee the next night is so good that when I went to the Alpine Club meeting, the buses had stopped, everything had stopped, so I had to walk from 92nd Street back down to the village with a cast, without crutches, on what was a swollen knee, and it was perfectly okay. All right. So I asked this girl, take me to your leader. <laughs> because this assist that she gave me, okay, was not something, you know, laying on of hands or trying to do something. She's having me feel her fingers. I'm the one that is doing whatever benefit to the knee. She's getting me to do it. Okay, great. Now, this is the right direction. Okay, I want to find out more. Okay, go in, so we go into the Scientology Center in New York City and, and whatnot, and a small group of people there and whatnot, and we do some auditing, co-auditing. So you're working with another person who's just as ignorant of what's going on as I am, and you follow directions, and you do, you ask her to do this, and then do this, and got six different things that you do, and then you do the six again, and do the six again, and whatnot. And she is obviously gaining, okay? She is obviously gaining. Wow, okay? And then it turns around, and she does the same thing for me. Wow, I go through stuff that has been bugging me for the week, for the month, for a few years, and I'm better off. Now, this was totally amateurish. I said, okay, if that's amateurish, what's professional like? So I did five days professional. My IQ goes up 30 points. No, not 20 points. 20 points, because I'm 20 points, and my reaction time is back like I'm a teenager. And how old are you at this time? I was in my 30s. Okay. Well, not quite. And so I tried a game of ping pong, okay? God, I beat the guy, all right? He was good. All right, well, how about chess? I played Ron. Okay, Ron. I played, played Ron. Uh, game of chess, okay? And he's a Class B certified, you know, he's tested out and whatnot. And I beat him, okay, at chess. Wow, how much gain I have made in five days it's unimaginable. Okay, so I said, all right, I'll become a life member. 
Well, anybody who became a life member within 10 years of the church uh, was awarded being a founding member. Congratulations. So I've been a life member, you know, I've been looking into it ever since those days of 61. Okay, that's back in 61, 62. It's been a wonderful experience, and you've come, I've come to do all of the things which I ever dreamed I could do, and a whole lot more. Uh, so for me, it's been a good thing. I don't know that it's a good thing for everybody. But it worked for you. But it's great for me. Sure. That's, that's the important thing, that it works for you, and you get some development and spirituality of it and intellect. The thing I like about it is I'm the one that did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not anybody else doing it for me. Right. Through the years, you came back to Jackson after your hip healed up. Right. And that's when we kind of fast forward to you ascending the Grand and skiing the Grand uh, because you had your hip fused at that time. Right. Right. And also, while you're living here in Jackson... You, had, you created a career of being a ski instructor, and because of your dedication, your lifetime commitment and dedication to educating people about skiing, you have been recognized by the National Ski and Snowboard Association because you're in their Hall of Fame, right. and, and you said that you had how many Hall of Fames? I've got five. I'm in five ski halls of fame now. Uh, that one. We have one in Jackson. Okay. Okay. We have the Intermountain uh, Ski Area, okay, uh, which has a Hall of Fame. So this Intermountain Area. Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, one at Dartmouth, okay. So I became a Ski Hall of Fame in Dartmouth. And we also had one from my home state in Maine. And they wanted me in their Hall of Fame. Well, congratulations, and and thank you for what you've done to the, for the ski community through all these years. Yeah. And something else that you have contributed to this community is is a band, and <laughs> but this band is is an absolute icon. And during the it's been around for fifty years now, and you've probably seen some interesting activity during those fifty years while being in. In the band, and the band is called the Stagecoach Band. Right. And you play every Sunday. At, that I'm in town. <laughs> that you're in town. That you're here at the Stagecoach Bar in Wilson. Right. And you do a little. You have a particular performance of yodeling, which you don't hear much nowadays. And tell us, how did you learn to yodel? Where did you pick that up? <laughs> Well, that was uh, in my college, when I was in college, okay. Uh, I had a roommate, and he had come over from Europe in the late 30s to avoid the the war, basically. So he was German-American, and he wanted to learn yodeling like he had in his home country, okay, Alpine. So uh, he got records over in New York City, he got records of the Europa import music store. And he would bring these up, and he would play them for me and whatnot. And gee, they were beautiful. I mean, it's, uh, it's melodic yodeling, which had sort of disappeared over the years. I, I mean, the records were all 78 records of music back in the 30s. 
and you couldn't find it. I've gone on to Europe, and I can't find anything like this. Now I see on on YouTube, uh, Melanie Oest has taken up this old style of yodeling, and she does a fantastic job of it. And she's got she, her whole family is a band, okay, and they played in Switzerland and won awards and whatnot. And it, it's absolutely gorgeous yodeling that she does. I only do one of the songs. <laughs> and how does the yodeling tie into to the Stagecoach Band? Well, uh, at Dahmer's, uh, an old Dahmer's guy, okay, in World War Two, uh, wrote this, rewrote this Austrian song, okay, Two Boards on Cold Pile of Snow, which is rewrite. And so... It's a nice song, but I thought it needed a yodel to go on it. So I took one of the, you know, 1930s yodels, okay, and stuck it onto two boards on Cold Pile of Snow, and everybody loved it. It's a beautiful little yodel, which fits the song uh, perfectly. We still do it almost every Sunday night. Two boards on cold pilots now, and its popularity uh, at the top of of Corbett School War <laughs> at the village. Okay, uh-huh. at the top of on the rock is one of the verses of that song. Is on a plaque at the top of Corbett School War. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So when... not the yodel, but <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's become very popular. One of the more complicated yodels I, I also do at the stagecoach, and we call it the airborne yodel. The guys throwing the girls in the air. Okay, in dancers, they toss the girls in the air. Okay, so it's kind of popular from that standpoint. So we have the airborne yodel, and it's being the other yodel. At, again, it's alpine. That yodel, I think, comes from uh, Davos, Switzerland. But I went over there and I couldn't find anybody that knew anything about it. Um, <laughs> well, sometimes traditions die. They right. kind of just fade away. Or some people don't know why they do something and they don't know the history behind it at all. Right. And so if people want to see you play, what time do you guys start every Sunday, the Sundays that you were there? We start at 6. Okay. And uh, a little af- after seven, and we're back for a second set, I'll do the, uh, usually I'll do the uh, two boards on cold powder snow. And then toward the end of the evening, we do the airborne. So if people want to come and meet you, they can come out there yes. and buy you a water on Sundays. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and listen to your yodeling. Yes. Yes. Terrific. And also at the hoot. The hoot. And what is the hoot? Tell people what the hoot is. Well, uh, on Monday nights, mm-hmm. okay, uh, we're up, up at Dornan's, and we have an acoustic music, whereas at Stagecoach we're amplified. This is acoustic at Dornan. I think you're doing a podcast up there. 
you're recording next Monday. <laughs> oh, am I? All right. I thought I'd start that. <laughs> oh. Dick Barker and I wanted to have acoustic music, situa- a venue, okay, something that we could depend on being able to do weekly. So Dick wanted to call it Hoot Nanny. I, that's okay. And we had tried several th- different things, but having it at Dornan's made a permanent uh, location of where we could have this acoustic music going. And we weren't sure it would work, and, and uh, Bob Dornan gave us a couple of weeks to find out. Okay, well, the first night there was hardly anybody there. Uh, second night, only a few more. But by the third night, the word was out. And we started having a, enough people to make it workable for Dornan's. So then it's gone on Monday nights ever since. We're in our 20, 27th year. Well, I'm glad that Bob Dornan gave you the place to do that. Yeah. yeah that was very nice of him. It really was. Mm-hmm. And Dick would do the arm twisting, not me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been spectacular. And share with everybody your age so they can get an idea of who I'm talking with right now. I'm 87. You're 87 years old, and you still teach ski school, but now you, you teach ski school at Snow King Mountain. Yep. In town. I've seen you out there teaching students when I've taken my son right. out there on the mountain. I'm just doing a clinic for instructors. Okay, so you're doing a clinic, but you're still teaching. You're 87 yep. years old. Yep. You're still teaching. You're still playing the music every Sunday. Oh, yeah. You haven't stopped. You keep going. And you're exercising. You say that you go to exercise at the senior center right? Um, every day. I did today. You did today. Most uh, days. About four days a week. So... You are still as active as you want to be, mm. and you're still trucking along. And to that, I congratulate you. My, oh, well, thank you. my hat's <laughs> off to you, Bill. <laughs> this has been a spectacular time listening to you and learning from you, and I appreciate you sharing your story today. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. I look forward to seeing you around town. Have a great day. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout-out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you help bring it all together. Y'all come back again. You hear?